it's so convenient to me to be talking about anxiety in a platform because it's just this moment, the moment right before I really launch into the platform, that my anxiety may be highest, in fact. So I want to tell you that I am fully embodying our topic for this morning right now. I actually tend toward anxiety myself, and the holiday season is a key time for anxiety for many of us, along with depression and the winter blues. Personally, I have an innate type A-ness that I have yet to get rid of. I feel as though between last week's fear platform and this week's about anxiety, you are getting a little journey through my neuroses, so I hope you're enjoying that. Much of my work in seminary was actually uh, devoted to developing the ability to at least seem calm in anxious situations. There's a certain term for that. It's called a non-anxious presence, and it's highly prized in religious leaders. <laughs> they, they talk, too, about ministerial presence, and I used to joke with my friends that you should be able to buy both of them at Rite Aid, like a cream. You could just kind of put the little non-anxious presence, you know, if you were feeling dry, some ministerial presence on the other side. The truth is that non-anxious presence really is important. The ability to see anxiety around you to, or to experience anxiety in a situation and not to be drawn in by it, to stand separate, acknowledge it, but not absorb it. But just because you seem non-anxious in a certain situation doesn't mean you actually feel non-anxious. I sometimes think when I seem calmest, you all should give Peter an extra pat or a sympathetic smile because I may, in fact, be going home and having all my anxiety come into play there. So I have a couple of techniques that I do to try to help my own anxiety. If you go into my office, you'll see a big red poster leaning up against a bookcase facing me so that you all know it's not for you if you come in for pastoral counseling. It's, it's giving me a message. The message is, keep calm and carry on. Do any of you know the history of that phrase? It's very popular now. Yeah, Jeff Mehal, of course, knows the history of that phrase. <laughs> so during the bombing of London, uh, as bombs were going all around and blackouts and, and, you know, it was a time of incredible anxiety, anxiety I can really only just imagine, the British government created, are, am I getting this right, Jeff? Yes, good, thanks. The British government created these posters that say, keep calm and carry on. It's kind of the, the version of the stiff upper lip, you know, codified by the British government to saying to people that they needed to continue with their lives, despite the fact that every night they were putting out black, you know, blackout tape, every night they were being bombed. And I think it was actually a relatively successful campaign. It's now translated into sort of a mass marketing merchandise thing, so you can find Keep Calm and Carry On outfits and purses and posters all around Target and other places. <laughs> The truth is that we can't always just keep calm and carry on. We need support in our self-calming. I don't believe the British government included a significant meditation technique training, although that could have been helpful. And so I wonder, as at many times, what religious traditions say about this, what we can learn from world religions. That idea of calming our sense of anxiety is a component in almost every religious tradition. Because, I imagine, anxiety is a component in almost every human experience. 
I want to just take a moment to think about what anxiety is really about. It's different than grief or sadness, loss or anger. I'm not talking about those kind of deeper emotions that we experience. I'm talking about everyday anxiety, which apparently my infant is hearing right now, <laughs> feeling right now. Everyday anxiety, the thing that just has us sort of wring our hands and worry and that we know is ultimately an unproductive emotion. I think that there are a number of sources for anxiety in our lives. For many of us, not knowing what's coming next is a huge source of anxiety. I actually find that frequently in my own life and in conversations with all of you that sometimes waiting to get the news, waiting to get the diagnosis, feels like almost the worst part, that time of not knowing, not being able to plan. And the same is true in our lives when we don't know what's coming next, when we're in a moment of really uncharted territory. Trying to plan without knowing the future and wanting to have control over something that ultimately, of course, we can't control. So here are some responses in different religious traditions. There's a famous passage in the book of Matthew, one of the four Gospels in the Christian New Testament, that you all probably know at least a line from. Consider the lilies of the field. They neither spin nor toil, yet they are more beautiful than Solomon in all his glory. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teachings. And I'm going to quote a little bit more of it, a little different part for you. Therefore, I tell you, says Jesus to the people gathered, do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor about your body, what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And which of you, by being anxious, can add one cubit to his span of life? But first, seek, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be yours as well. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for that day. There's an aspect in this that's about trusting in a bountiful God. That may not be an, ac an aspect that resonates as much for you, but there's another aspect I think that we can really draw from the idea of simply letting things be and existing in the day. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. Biblical interpreters would encourage us to read this not as prose, but as poetry, as having a metaphorical truth. Don't literally be like the birds and the lilies. If you actually literally don't worry yourself about what you eat, you'll be hungry, ultimately. But instead, grasp onto that truth of turning away from what is frantic and toward what is calm. So Christianity, of course, grew out of Judaism, and Jesus speaking in that time, if those indeed were his words, was speaking as a Jew and from the Jewish tradition. So We'll turn in our little hop skip through world religious traditions, that was Christianity in about 45 seconds, to Jewish responses to anxiety. There are a few ways that the Jewish canon, which is very broad and encompasses many thousands of years, deals with worry. And they can be divided into two sections. 
One is Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, which has an ordered response to the world. If we read Proverbs, we see a people that say things happen for a reason, good people are rewarded, the wise know the right timing of all things, and things occur within that right timing. You can trust that if you do well in life, you'll be rewarded in life. That's not always the human experience. <laughs> and so we turn then to another part of the wisdom literature in the Hebrew Bible, to the book of Job and to Ecclesiastes, or the preacher. Job, many people know the story of Job, the suffering servant who had so much and all of it was taken away by God. He goes through a series of trying to understand why it is that he, a good person, had so many things taken away from him. And the, the, the ultimate end, God speaks to him out of the whirlwind and says essentially, you don't know what you're talking about. You can't possibly know what you're talking about. The world is so big. Were you there when I, when I formed the universe? Puts Job's piece of understanding, Job's hope for what he was promised in the book of Proverbs, right? For that order in life, for reason and rational reward, puts that within the context of a much larger universe and says, well, life doesn't work out that way. I mean, that's the, that, there you go. That's the message of the book of Job. Life doesn't always work out that way. Ecclesiastes similarly offers an alternative to the book of Proverbs, to that idea of orderness, orderliness in life. The famous passage in Ecclesiastes, made famous actually by a song by the birds, which you all know, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. It goes on and on, and most of the, well, about half of those things are things you really don't want to have happen to you. It's not that fun to pluck up what is planted, much more fun to plant. And so, again, we see that idea that that time does not always bring us exactly what we want, that we are not always rewarded exactly as we think we ought to be. That passage ends with the phrase, what gain has the worker from his toil? And I think you can hear a resonance with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't have anxiety about these things. Don't be frantic. What gain has the worker from his toil? Why worry? The injunction in Ecclesiastes is that despite the fact that life gives and takes away, that it doesn't follow the order that we wish we could see, the order promised by the book of Proverbs, we might as well enjoy it as it is available. Ultimately, despite some of its darker messages, the book of Ecclesiastes is actually a call that the wise person enjoys what is before them. So how about humanist responses? In the humanist way, which is one of the, the sort of seminal books of our tradition written by Ed Erickson, who was the senior leader here in the uh, 60s, he tells the story of Julian Huxley, a 20th century British humanist, uh, who was really one of the people who brought national and worldwide attention to the concept of religious humanism, humanism as his own religion. Julian Huxley, who lived a long and highly productive life, 
had nervous breakdowns throughout his life. That is his term for his experience of a breakdown of his spirit, times at which he said he could no longer function, that he was missing the joyful connection to the world that he experienced at other times. For Huxley, spirituality, the way he defined it, came to have increasing importance for him over his lifetime. He identified a need for religious feeling to keep him in balance as he struggled with his own nervous breakdowns, his own experiences of the dark night of the soul. Felix Adler, the founder of Ethical Culture, also talks about suffering and a potential cure for it, or response to it at least, not specifically anxiety in this case, but our more general experience of suffering in the world. He finds the cure for it in its sharing, in our experience with each other and our relationships with each other, as well as in action and worth in ethical response, action and work in ethical responses to life. It's sort of the carry on part of the keep calm and carry on message. Keep going, work for good in the world and you will see your suffering and your anxiety alleviated. And I think that's a true experience for many of us, that if we go out and do something good for someone else, we do change our experience of the world. But if that's the carry-on part of the message, we're missing still, I think, the calm. And there hasn't been a whole lot of emphasis on the importance for calm and quiet in the humanist canon, maybe because we tend to emphasize intellect and action rather than emotional feeling. So I want to invite us to look a little, actually, you don't have a choice, I'm talking to you, so I hope you'll come with me, you can stop listening, to look at other non-theistic religious traditions. Buddhism is one that calls to us, I think, with an obvious invitation to calm. It's, it's actually sort of, in America, synonymous. Our understanding of Buddhism is often synonymous with an escape from anxiety, a calm, a way of centering ourselves. Thich Nhat Hanh says in a beautiful phrase, breathing in, I smile, breathing out, I relax. This is a wonderful moment. And I think you see there that Buddhist connection with the, with the particular moment we find ourselves in, a centering right here in our experience of the here and now. To go a little more deeply into that, I share a story from a book called Zen 24-7. <laughs> when you think about it, it's kind of a funny title, isn't it? Zen 24-7, it's a great book by Philip Sudo. It looks at bringing Zen experience into our daily 24-7 lives. Sudo writes, Zen lore tells of a time the Buddha gathered his disciples for a speech, twirling a flower in his hand. As the audience sat silently, only one in the crowd, Kasyapa, was aware that the wordless sermon had already begun. Kasyapa broke into a broad smile at the master's message. All things reflect the divine energy of nature. Every flower, every rock, every sound, every sight. We begin to see there, I think, not just a centeredness in the moment, but what that centeredness can bring as well, a connection to those things around us. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. Another key concept within Buddhism is non-attachment. 
being unattached from the world. And I think in many ways it's a concept that's regularly misunderstood. Certainly I have misunderstood it in the past. And I think it can be hard for us to grasp, especially in a community like ours, where we value so much relationship to each other. How does non-attachment work into that value for relationship, for our desire for connection with each other and with all people? Well, I turn for a little more learning about that to the Tao Te Ching, an important book in all of Chinese religion, including Buddhism, and also the foundational document of Taoism. The Tao Te Ching, translated by Stephen Mitchell uh, in a really beautiful translation, talks about the key of non, that non-attachment that the, that the master or the, the person who, who is in line with the Tao, the way, can experience. The master stays behind, that is why she is ahead. She is detached from all things, that is why she is one with them. Because she has let go of herself, she is perfectly fulfilled. And then, fill your bowl to the brim and it will spill. Keep sharpening your knife and it will blunt. Chase after money and security, and your heart will never unclench. Care about people's approval, and you will be their prisoner. Do your work, then step back. The only path to serenity. The Tao Te Ching, I think, calls us to engage with the world, and then in that stepping back, to recognize that our engagement can be not a source of anxiety, but a source of serenity. That we, all we can do is bring ourselves to the world just as we are, and that we need to let go of control over outcome. That sense of non-attachment is really, I think, about oneness, about experiencing a connection with another person, articulating that we are our own person and they are our own, but in our connection we find that we are one. And we'll return to that in just a moment. So the Tao Te Ching calls us to this sense of of non-attachment and particularly of letting go of control. I wonder, though, how much we, who are not necessarily masters of the Tao, can let go of control and attachment. Without those things, without attachment to outcome, without attachment to the other, without attachment to control and how our lives unfold, we might not feel as much anxiety in the world. But how do we do that in our own lives? I think the question becomes how we can practice this just a little bit while acknowledging that we are not indeed Taoist masters, that we are not Job, the suffering servant. We may need posters to remind us, as I do, as the British did, perhaps, maybe little Zen gardens in our office, whatever it is that can keep us recalling ourselves back to that intention. And I think we need to let go of our desire for perfection in our non-worrying. What a trap that is, to feel anxious about how anxious we are and how much we're not letting go of all of our anxiety. There's a piece, too, that I think underlies both the Jewish and Christian responses and also the Buddhist and Taoist responses that I want to explore a little bit more. I think think we see in the Jewish and Christian response a call to trust in the universe, 
to trust perhaps in a benevolent God, to trust in the large movement of time, to see that our experience is such a small piece of the depth of the universal experience as Job heard. In the Buddhist and Taoist response, we see that call for non-attachment, that call for separation that allows for connection. It's actually related to non-anxious presence, to the teaching around that, asking us to articulate where we are ourselves, to notice where another person is, not to have those things meld, but through that articulation to paradoxically create a deeper connection between us. A question we might have looking at the Jewish and Christian responses that call for trust is whether we're required to have a supreme being to trust in, in order to feel that trust. Most of us don't imagine God, if we imagine God at all, as a being in that way, a being that offers reward as it's promised in the book of Proverbs, and as we can see throughout some of the Christian tradition. What then do we trust in? How do we experience a feeling of trust in the universe? I think one piece can be found in our emphasis on relationship, our experience of trusting in each other, in ethical relationships, and in the meaning we find when we create those relationships, in the meaning we can find in the world. And I think it brings us back to Job, to trusting in the larger mystery of the universe. This is much closer, I imagine, to a conception of God that we might have, or a conception of oneness, the concept in the Tao and in Ecclesiastes, Buddha holding that flower and knowing that the divine energy, that there is a oneness in all being, in the flower, in the rock, in the speaker, and in the listener. I think at its heart, this is what non-attachment is about. And there was a wonderful story shared that helped me to understand that. It tells about a teacher trying to teach his students about the meaning of non-attachment, asking them to come in each day over a series of a number of days and meditate upon a vase placed on a table, or we could say upon a candle. Each day, the first day the students came in and came out and said, well, the candle is cream-colored and it has a flame and it's on a bronze kind of thing. And he said, no, no. Not, not on what it looks like, meditate on its being. So they came in the next day and they tried a little bit harder and they you know, got a little closer. Well, its being is kind of waxy and you know, uh, it's not quite right. So over the series of a number of days, they came in and looked at the candle and, and thought about it and meditated on it. And over time, they would come back and say, well, it, it, it's fire. Well, it, it's, it's part of me. The candle and I are the same. On the final day, they walked into the room to find no candle on the table, and so came out asking the teacher why he had taken the candle away, and he said, oh, after all that time, did you really need the candle? It's a sense of being so intimately connected, recognizing the unity of our experience with another's experience, even the experience of a candle in front of us, that we realize that in some mystical way we are the same. And so when the candle goes, we can still hold the candle in our mind. 
For me, that was an important learning about that non-attachment and about the oneness that comes. So maybe trust of the kind called for when we talk about trusting in the universe, when we talk about trusting in each other, is not so different from non-attachment. At their core, they call us to an experience of oneness in the world, an experience of oneness with each other, a sense of our own smallness, and at the same time, our interconnectedness with all things that are. I think this relates to a key part of the religious experience, something that every religion does, if it is worth its weight I'm not sure what exactly, how you weigh religions. If it's worth its weight in gold, I guess, why not? Gold's really expensive these days, so it had better be very good. That is to present us with an alternate reality, to present us with another way of measuring the world, another way of experiencing what is of worth to us. And this, I think, gets to the heart of how we can deal with anxiety, how religion can help us in that way. We get anxious, I think, over things that are of value. Some of you know about Felix Adler's value and worth paradigm, the idea that value is what we bring to the world, what the world sees in us, and what the world says is important, our car, our job, how pretty we are, all of those pieces that we feel anxiety around. Worth, however, is what lies deep within us, what is intrinsic to our very being, and that can never change. And so what Adler does by offering that paradigm to us, by offering the idea that worth is inherent in every person, is he invites us into a new way of measuring the world. He invites us into a new reality. I think we, we experience that ourselves sometimes at moments, ironically, of great tragedy or loss. We all know that phrase, it really made me realize what was important. Well, I think religious practice, centering, and practices that combat anxiety are ways for us to realize what's really important, to realize what really matters more frequently without having to wait for the tragedy to show us. Ultimately, I think all of this, this alternative viewpoint, alternative way of measuring the world, an experience of our interconnectedness with a larger universe, all of this calls for a response that is essentially mystical. A mystical response both in practice and in understanding. A response that asks us to let go of control and to see ourselves as part of the universe, not the totality. Not to say that our experiences are insignificant, but that they are part of a larger whole. So what does mysticism, which can be kind of a scary word, mean for humanists? I actually think that mysticism resonates deeply with the human, humanist tradition. Bill Murray, a humanistic writer who speaks about naturalistic religious humanism, talks about his interconnection with all beings, his experience of mysticism and oneness in nature. Felix Adler talked about the ethical manifold, the interconnection of ethical agents, the kind of web of relationships and possibilities and potentialities. And to me, that is another kind of mysticism, another way that we look for deep connection to each other. So when we're feeling all of this anxiety, 
all of this hand-wringing and worry about our place in the world, we can turn to some of these responses for an intellectual experience, an intellectual way out. We can remember our smallness in connection to the universe. We can remember the way that we are ultimately deeply connected to all things around us, the way we are one, and our trust then in our place in the universe, in our place in our community. And we can practice by coming here and sitting in silence on Sunday mornings, by sitting in silence on our own, by walking in nature, whatever it is that calls you to that experience of oneness and the letting go of control, that for you can be a mystical response. And of course, we can sing. The music today is a little themed, as you might have noticed. And uh, one reason for that is simply that Bailey and I were having a little fun as we planned. If it is not precisely your cup of tea, it's like the weather in Oklahoma. Wait five minutes and the music at West will change. And be glad it's not the little drummer boy on repeat. That's good, right? But we also chose this music to ask the question whether non-anxiety, getting rid of our anxiety, could be as easy as Rogers and Hammerstein make it seem. Is optimism called for if we're mystically inverse, immersed in the way in the Tao? And perhaps non-attachment, perhaps floating in that in that emptiness from control, in that mystical oneness, is in fact a kind of optimism. If we look at spiritual responses more broadly, and particularly psychology and positive psychology, I think we see that that may be the case. Psychologist Roger Walsh calls for religions, says religions have identified the solution to that problem of distraction in concentration and a concentrated mind. And he goes on. The mind has a remarkable ability to mirror and take on the qualities of whatever we attend to. If we listen to an angry person or watch a violent scene, our minds start to boil with anger. If we focus on a loving person, our minds tend to fill with love. Positive psychology takes this one further, asking us to concentrate on what is good in our lives, to tell stories of good things, to be in, in relationship with people who lift us up. Even keeping gratitude journals can be a way of both relieving our anxiety and bringing us more in a more connected way to our experience with the world. And I think we can often find that we do indeed sing our way to happiness. And so I invite us to do that now.